Good morning once again, Grace. Um, it has been a great pleasure and honor and delight for our family to be uh, with you for three weeks. It's been an honor to serve you uh, with the word and in worship the last two weeks. And it's been a very just a loving thing for so many of you to offer uh, ways to serve us throughout the weeks we're here and to spend time with us. And so we're really thankful, uh, a little bit sad to be going home to Brooklyn today. Uh, and just before I dig in, um, I know the nature of the summer is not uh, everybody is here every week by any stretch of the imagination. So I want to take just an extra extended moment before I read the scripture passage just to remind you what we've been doing because we've had a sort of little three part uh, sermon series. And I've had a few people ask me for resources. So let me just, before we even dig in, give you some resources if you want to dig into this more. Um, because what we've been talking about is basically this idea that our hearts, when you think about your individual heart, uh, it is as complicated and mysterious and unsettled and inexhaustible as is the cosmos itself. That just as we haven't settled uh, planets in space or figured out what is out there, your heart is that deep and that mysterious. You, you can't even know your own heart. It, uh, God himself is the only one who can understand your entire heart. And so, and, and yet that means that we want to know this heart because it motivates us. We want to know it better. We want to ask God to help us know it. And so we've been talking a lot about desires, about the fact that we are just hungering people. We're desiring things all the time in life. We're never satisfied. And, we, and we've been asking, what does that mean? Uh, and so let me give you a couple resources. Number one is if you want to dig into what does it mean to understand your heart and the fact that we are desiring hungering people, come and ask Mark for some good resources. Okay. I'm sure. And, and that's not just passing the buck. He's, he's here. I'm leaving. Ask him. I'm sure he can give you some really good stuff. Um, he can map out your heart perfectly. And, um, but secondly, we're doing two things. We're doing a sermon series. This is actually a 10-week uh, series in Brooklyn that our churches in Brooklyn are doing. So if you want to dig in, uh, I just kind of gave the first, we're doing the first three introductory ones. If you want to dig in more, I'd be happy for you to go if you're the kind of person that listens to sermons. My name of my church is on the back of your bulletin. Go Google us and you can listen to the sermons that we start digging into really specific stuff, specific desires, where this has been sort of just introducing you to the theme. And lastly, there's a book by an author named Henry Nouwen, N-O-U-W-E-N. His book is called The Life of the Beloved. Uh, and this is the book that we've used to sort of shape all of these sermon series. And that is really simple. It's really concise. I would recommend that to you. Um, and so just before I read the passage, let me remind you really quick again. We've been talking about hungers and desires. And two weeks ago, the first one, we, we, it was called Blessed Are the Hungry. And the thing that we saw there was that, as I said, we are never satisfied we're deeply desiring we're deeply hungering and hunger is really the word that the scriptures give for it that our hearts are constantly hungering for things that we can never be satisfied by by this world Uh, that was the main thing but the thing that we wanted to see there was that that's actually a good thing god or at least in its natural capacity god made you to desire he made you to desire and the problem is that we feed ourselves on the thing in this world uh, apart from him and that's why we can never be satisfied. Uh, Augustine said that our hearts are restless. You could even say our hearts never are satisfied. They never stop hungering until they feed upon him, until they rest in him. And that's what we saw last week, that Jesus fed people actual bread. And then after he fed people bread, he said, actually, you come asking me more and more for more of this bread because your stomachs are hungry. But that's not what you're really hungry for. What you're really hungry for is, is something that will satisfy you forever, which is me. God himself is the only one big enough 
to fill your heart, to satisfy your tummy, to satisfy your hungers. Okay? So that's what we've seen. And then tonight I just want to read this passage. You'll see where we go here. This is what I think the last sort of piece we need to at least have an introduction as you begin this journey or continue this journey of understanding your own heart. And that is that we actually, in some sense, God's people become a part of Jesus, the bread of life, in this mysterious way. So let me read to you the text and we'll explore it a little bit this morning. It's a couple passages from Paul's uh, letter to the church in Corinth. He says, the cup of blessing, and he's talking about this table that we'll partake of in a moment. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread... We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you pray with me briefly? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you. Um, Wherever our hearts are now, distant from you, near to you, all of us need you, whether or not we recognize that. And so we pray that now you would show up by by feeding us upon your life-giving word, which is Jesus himself, and that you would speak to us in this time in these next few minutes, that you would actually give us a word to each individual, what they need for life, for full health, for salvation this day and this week. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we did spend the last two weeks talking again about your individual heart and your desires and how we can look into the way God satisfies us a little bit here with real good in the world, but he's actually, uh, they're just appetizers to make us long to feed upon him. And, and today I want us to see the piece that we sort of left out intentionally, and that is that all of this, this desiring, your individual desires, as different as they are from the person in the pew next to you, and all of our unique hungering, all of our desires take place in and are shaped by community. Community. Your hungers are actually shaped by the community you partake of, and and they take place, your desires take place within people around you. Okay? I'm going to give us two uh, images for this morning. The one is is rather brutal, so we're going to do it quickly and then move on from it and leave it behind. But how many of you have seen uh, the amazing documentary series, The Planet Earth? A lot of folks. Um, it's, it's, it's a Discovery Channel thing. It's this amazing box set uh, where they went. It's, it's as, as IMAX, like cinematic special as you can get. Well done. And they, and they basically are going and, and looking at sort of every piece of the planet from every kind of creature and, and topography and microclimate. And, and they just dig in in these ways that are so amazing. And perhaps uh, one of the most difficult parts of the documentary, uh, and this makes sense in a beach context here uh, in the summer, is actually when I watch what happened, how uh, sea turtles, the life cycle of sea turtles. Do you guys know the life cycle of sea turtles? Um, earlier this summer, I was actually able to see this uh, at a beach. They put, they put yellow tape around this spot, and it said a little sign. It said baby sea turtle or sea turtle eggs, whatever. I'm like, 
wow, right here on the beach. You know, and they don't want people to step on them. But in this Discovery Channel thing, and this is a little brutal, but get ready for it. Uh, what happens is all these eggs uh, are are here under the sand and very, very few of them make make it uh, to to hatch to the hatching stage because there are all kinds of lizards or birds or things that come and they love to steal these things and eat the eggs because it's a source of protein. So very few of these eggs even make it. Uh, and then whenever they all come around the same day or two uh, because of the lunar cycle and stuff and whatnot, all of a sudden you have these little baby turtles that are up in the dunes and they just know instinctively to make a mad dash for the water. But as they're making a mad dash, all the seagulls see and they're excited. So there's these little baby sea turtles that, you know, have these little paddles and they're doing like this, trying to get over sand. They're not ready and they're trying to get down to the water and only like a small portion of them make it to the water. And then when they get in the water, guess what? There are more predators waiting for them at the thing when they sit in. This is great. We get to eat all these little baby sea turtles and only a few by luck, by having slightly bigger little fins, whatever it is, make it through and get out to the water. And then they will live the rest of their existence basically alone in a deep, dark cosmos until once later in their life they decide to uh, find a mate. And then, you know, they move on and they live the rest of their life again in the deep, dark cosmos. I want to suggest to you that that's a pretty good description of our lives. Not entirely. But from a certain perspective, does that not resonate in the sense of when you think about your life and especially uh, the way in which you're in the world, that you're taught from a, from a small age that this world is brutal, that you lose something, you lose someone, you realize there are predators, there are things like death and sickness and people who want to hurt you. And, and, and there are others out there that are trying to get to a safe place, too, and they're your competitors and, and you don't want maybe ill to happen to them, but all you're really concerned about is can you get to a safe place? Can you survive? Can you make it? And then you get out there and sometimes it feels like you're living this life, especially the longer that life goes on, that sometimes you just feel so alone in the universe out there. In what context can you have community if that's the way that life is? And frankly, modernism teaches us that at the basis of all existence, no matter what we lean into or enjoy that basically it's survival of the fittest or the luckiest. And I want to say, even if you do stay alive, you get out there, you can only do one of two things. You either say, well, you know what? I'm a fast little swimmer. Tough luck. And so you're prideful and you take, you know, uh, credit for everything that you have. Or you feel guilty about it. I don't know why. I don't know why. I feel terrible. I don't know why. I don't deserve any of this. Right? Let's move on. If any of that resonates, let's move on to the image that Jesus and the Bible actually gives us that Christianity would teach is a more helpful image for what it means to be in the world than that existence. And it is simply this it's the one we've been looking at. And it's the one that Jesus uh, and Paul mentioned here tonight. Uh, and that's this idea of bread. This idea of a loaf of bread. A little strange, I know, quite a jump from baby sea turtles to bread. But uh, if you've ever tried to make bread, you'll understand that it is it is a deep metaphor. And that's why it becomes basically the central metaphor in the scriptures for food and hunger and desire and community and all these things. Uh, have any of you tried to make homemade bread, especially from a sourdough starter or from scratch? 
it's really difficult. My brother's a bit of a baker, and so he would come and teach me uh, how to use like local bacteria from scratch uh, and try to make bread and try to see it rise. And I don't care how many times I apprenticed under him and how perfect the recipe is, uh, I can never get an edible batch of bread. And 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 I'm somewhat of a decent home cook. I have cooked lots of amazing sort of feasts for people, but I cannot make bread. And I think that the main reason is because even if you have the right recipe, you, you need the right recipe. And, and even if you do lock into the right recipe, you kind of have to fold your hands and let this spirit of the yeast work, right? You have, there's nothing you can do. You can't make it rise. You have to hope that it does. So bread is, to me, a good metaphor for community. And, and think about it this way. Just as I have trouble making bread, it can be really hard to find community. What's the recipe? Go ahead and tell me. I, I bet you've tried many recipes. Uh, and this, I'm going to try to be less specific because this made a lot more sense in, in, my, uh, in my Brooklyn context because I was using a lot of musical bands um, from sort of my, my adolescence. But when I was, if you think back to high school, I, just in high school I had so many phases of trying to fit in, trying to belong, trying to find who my family of friends was going to be in my community. Uh, I, I grew up in, in high school, I grew up in, uh, in North Texas. And so I remember for a while I was hanging out and there were these really fun people who started being really nice to me. That They seemed really cool and everyone looked up to them and they started hanging out with me. And it turns out they were what we called ropers, uh, which in Texas is like a cowboy, you know, or people that work on farm. And so I had a, I, all of a sudden I went out and I was like, Mom, I want to buy a pair of Wranglers, you know, and I want to buy, buy a pair of boots. And uh, I didn't get the Stetson hat or anything. That was a little too much. Uh, but I all of a sudden was really into Garth Brooks, you know. I'd walk around my house singing, and the thunder rolls, you know. Uh, and I had this big Garth Brooks face for about one year. And then a year later, uh, all of a sudden, my dad was in Hawaii, and I went to visit him, and I surfed. And I thought, surfing is the coolest thing ever. And this band called the Red Hot Chili Peppers came out, and we got MTV for the first time. And so in my North Texas, landlocked locker at my high school, you could open it and see all this surf stuff and gear, right? I grew my hair out. Uh, I was trying to fit in with all of these different people. And, and of course, when your identity is, when you're trying to land on an identity you choose for yourself, it, it's, especially in your adolescence, it's a little more colorful. But it's really not that different than as we grow up, is it? I mean, even now, wherever you find yourself maybe a little more settled or perhaps you're still thinking, we find these groups and we want to adopt the, the clothing and the friends and the way of speaking that helps us to fit in. So you might fancy yourself an intellectual and so you love to read uh, all the, the difficult uh, uh, articles in The New Yorker uh, or whatever it may be. Or you may find yourself to be a creative and so you, you, you consume constantly different plays and different kinds of art and love to talk about it with people. You may be into justice, um, and so you, make, you, you find your identity with those who are actually caring for the poor and the oppressed, and you work through those sorts of things. Um, there are all kinds of different ways we can do it. I'm sure these show up in a church like yours. We have all kinds of divisions in Brooklyn, and I'm sure in this place you could take your identity from either being a year-rounder or not being a year-rounder, just being here of temper. We find all of these ways to fit in and to get our identity and to tell us who we are. And I want to say to this, this is not a problem uh, only because it's necessarily exclusive like it is. It it is exclusive uh, by nature, these small groups. If I'm if I'm a cowboy, then that means I have to sort of like have cowboy values and I can't like these hippies over here that I was six months later. Right. Hippie surfer. You have to adopt values and you have to be exclusive to others. It's not it's not that that's the only problem. That is a problem. It's also a problem that. These groups, just as the same thing we've been saying for the last two weeks, these 
places of community. We are hungering for them. We desire them. And the ones here on earth will never, ever satisfy you. Okay, and I could do this. We did this. I don't want to just do this over and over again. But we could walk through your individual groups that you look for meaning. And we could begin to say that being a part of that club or this group uh, or these people will never satisfy your desire for community. Let me read to you a long passage from Henry Nouwen. This is the book I recommended to you. I think he gets it here really beautifully. It's worth quoting at length. He says, at issue here is the question, to whom do I belong? Do I belong to God or to the world? Many of my daily preoccupations suggest that I belong more to the world than to God. He says, a little bit of criticism makes me angry. A little rejection makes me depressed. A little praise raises my spirits. And a little success excites me. It takes so very little to raise me up or thrust me down. Often I'm like a small boat on the ocean, completely at the mercy of its waves. All the time and energy I spend in keeping some kind of balance and preventing myself from being tipped over and drowning shows that my life is mostly a struggle for survival. And not a holy struggle, but an anxious struggle, resulting from the mistaken idea that it is the world that defines me. As long as I keep running about asking, do you love me? Do you really love me? I give all the power to the voices of the world and I put myself in bondage because the world is filled with ifs. The world says, yes, I love you. If you are good looking. If you are intelligent and wealthy. I love you if you have a good education, a good job and good connections. I love you if you produce much, sell much, buy much. There are endless ifs hidden in the world's love. And these ifs enslave me since it is impossible to respond adequately to all of them. The world's love is and always will be conditional. I will remain hooked to the world trying, world, sorry, trying, failing and trying again. It is a world that fosters addictions because what it offers cannot satisfy the deepest cravings of my heart. What he's saying here is that any community that we create or that we long for, that we create in of ourselves, is always like that sea turtle. It's always to protect ourselves. It's always a shell. It's always a mad dash with those who will block for us and with us. It is always only uh, meant at the end of the day to sacrifice others for the sake of ourselves if need be and to help ourselves grow and survive. It's basically community for ourselves. And remember, remember what we've been saying is that the desire, desire is in itself good. It's put to wrong ends, but in and of itself, this desire is good. And so the desire that you have in your heart to belong, to be loved, that desire is a good gift. Don't despise it. Don't deny it. It is a gift given to you. That's our theme. We are meant to find real community. Real community here on earth. And to enjoy real community with real flesh and blood people. But, knowing that even at its best here on earth, it's always only an appetizer. It's always only a partial, beautiful, satisfying taste 
that is meant to lead us to God for full satisfaction. He's the source of your longing and he's the only one who can satisfy it. No merely human community can ever fill you up. You'll never belong enough. We need to belong to the community that is God himself. The one that's endlessly accepting. The one who loves perfectly and fully. Who has his attention set upon you not to compete with you, but to give to you. Let me read again the first part of our passage. The Apostle Paul is talking now as one who has met the risen Jesus and is forming new communities of faith throughout the Roman Empire. He talks about their central meal that he sets up in every church. And he says, this cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation? And that word is really important. It's the word koinonia. It's the word that you you participate in something, you fellowship in something, but it's deeper than just like being a part of an assembly at a concert, for example. This is participation in the sense of that in moments, uh, all of you baptized Christians that come forward and take this bread and wine into your into your mouth will ingest it, and it will in some mysterious way dissolve and become a part of your body and give you energy uh, in a very physical way. That's what koinonia is. He's saying is as we participate in the body of Jesus, in the body of Christ. We are participating in Him, and in some mysterious way we are made to participate in one another. And so there's a simple point here. To belong to God in the community that is God is in a very real sense to belong to His organized, ordinary, institutional church here on earth. Like Grace Presbyterian or any other faithful community Christian community out here on the East End or in New York City, wherever it may be. God made us desiring and hungering for community, and he knows how to have have our hungers and our desires shaped in and through community. Notice here that his recipe, he's actually talking about bread, but he has a recipe, right? I couldn't find the recipe, and even when I thought I had the right recipe to make actual bread, I can't ever get it to rise. The metaphor that Paul and Jesus, when he says, I'm the bread of life, and, and then it is applied to the church itself, is saying basically that this church, this meal, yes, and bread, but, but this body, this loaf, this community, God is the one who knows the recipe, and God is the one who is at work mixing it together, and God is the one who needs, and then by the Spirit helps the community Rise. God is making a new loaf, a new family, and a new meal. If you know who Nora Ephron was, she was uh, an amazing person in film, uh, director, screenwriter, uh, many other uh, accolades and and things that she's done. She wrote this, and I, I like the way, I don't know if she meant it straightforwardly or ironically or not, but she says, a family is a group of people who eat the same thing for dinner. Right? And whether or not she meant to, biblically, she's on to something, right? That a family is a group of people who eat the same thing for dinner. And what I mean, if we get beneath just the sort of metaphor and the experience here, is that the one difference between the church and all the other communities that we partake in, and here's what I want you to hear, all the communities you might partake of, many of them are good. Enjoy them as gifts from God. I, mean, I drive around the horse farms. Maybe some of you belong to these horse farm communities. Awesome. Hang out with people who love horses. Go through the liturgy of riding horses. Talk about it. Enjoy it. It's great. Many of the, community, the, the pieces of community that God gives us are good. 
But know that they're always limited. They're always created by us. They're always around some niche thing and, and they're limited in their capacity. And of course, we know that all human communities also have the potential to do great evil in the world. Right. You can gather together around some very dehumanizing things. The church, in contrast or or beyond that capability of of human community is not something we build. It's something that is built by and upon the inexhaustibly relational and infinitely loving God himself, who from eternity has been a father, a son and a spirit, a community knit together in perfect self-giving, other praising love for one another. And there was so much love to go around that they created a world and populated it with uh, individuals who God loves that they might bring it into that participation of that love. And so the community you long for is formed just like bread. The father thinks up the recipe. He begins kneading individuals into the lump that is his son. And then the spirit works this magic of fermentation. It's his work, not ours. We simply have to allow ourselves to be mixed in with all kinds of different colored and different shaped grains to be transformed in order that we might ourselves become tasty, to smell aromatic to the world, to be life-giving. David Brooks wrote a really interesting uh, book called The Social Animal, if you know David Brooks. Uh, and he says this, he's actually he's quoting someone from the book, but they're trying to understand how people, communities love one another. And, and this individual said this, he said, there must be, there must be, some supreme creative energy that can take love and turn it into synapses and then take a population of synapses and turn it into love, the hand of God must be there. Isn't that a beautiful quote? He's saying that even when you see people like this church love one another, it's just extraordinary. There must be some magic hand of God, I guess, going on when love is created. This is what I want you to hear before some application. This is what makes the church unique. It's a community that is not primarily about what you bring to the table. It's not about who you are, whether you can figure out how to dress right, you know, or listen to the correct music. You don't have to have any innate qualities. It's not about what you do. The church is primarily, if not only, about what Jesus brings to the table. His body and his blood poured out for you. The church is a community of people who are loved by Jesus. Not because we love God well. Or because we love one another well. It's because Jesus loves his body with an eternal, perfect love. And so we're therefore defined by him what we're given, not what we offer. We show up with empty hands to the table to receive. And then he makes us his body. He makes us his bread. And it's beautiful because it means that you, each individual here, whether or not you now belong to Jesus or you think you might want to belong to Jesus, you are a unique and chosen special ingredient necessary for this loaf, for this recipe. So here's where I want to spend just a minute trying to ask you some questions. We said that our desire for community is good. And we also said that our desire for community is usually bent towards ends and purposes and things that won't satisfy us and sometimes harm us and others. So the question, if this is true, if what Jesus and Paul are saying 
is that the community you actually long for is God himself in and through his people. As a foretaste here, and for him fully in eternity, are you hungering for the right community? When you're wanting to hang out with people, when you're wanting to love people, when you're wanting to receive people, when you're wanting to be shaped by, who are the people you want to shape you? Who are the people you want to be associated with? Are you hungering chiefly for the community that is going to give you the most satisfaction in this world because it's where God is most present? If it's true that our desires are shaped by our family, the ones who we hang out with, if it's true, and I think it is, that we are what we eat, then are you hungering for the community that God gives you in and through his people, his body. A couple of specific challenges here to those of you who may not consider yourself Christians, maybe investigating or exploring Jesus and Christianity. Maybe some of you who have wandered away from the church and are and Jesus and are just thinking about dipping your toes back in or exploring again. Um, there's this old quote from a church father that said outside the church. There is no salvation. And let me tell you what they meant by that. This is a, actually a common sentiment throughout church history. But here's what they mean by that. What it doesn't mean is that Jesus doesn't do out, things outside of the walls of this church. That's not at all what any of this means. It doesn't mean that God only uses clergy or anything like that. That's not at all. You'll find that nowhere in the scriptures. Or that individuals can't or don't hear from God in their private Bible readings or in their prayers. Of course. Of course they do. What it does mean is that part of God's recipe for giving himself to people, for giving them the community they long for, is that there is no dichotomy. There's no ultimate final distinction between Jesus himself and his body, the church. One flesh, one loaf. And so if you want to experience God and Jesus, then you need to experience his church. And the other thing is I know a lot of my friends who visit our church aren't really that interested in God, but they just want community. That, you know, the buzzword. I want community, which is great. But here's what I want to say. The flip side of that is if you are experiencing community here at this church or another, and you wonder why people are doing nice things for you or they seem to be a little more honest about things or a little more humble or whatever, you're not just experiencing a different kind of people. You're experiencing God. There's no, dis- there's no ultimate distinction between God's work through his people. You're experiencing him. You're, t- you're having a small taste of him. You're tasting a little appetizer of the real community you were made for. Okay? Because when they said that outside the church there's no salvation, they understood salvation not just to mean a momentary one-time thing, but salvation was God's ongoing work of making a renewed humanity who were not competitive, who were not at all like baby sea turtles, who were not a survival of the fittest, but making a new humanity that looked like God, loving one another, giving themselves for others, uh, laying down their lives for one another. Okay? So this is God's work, largely. Jesus alone can satisfy you, but he does it largely here by giving himself to you through other people in the church. Okay, one more application to you church people. You've been around the church for a little bit. This is the whole part where you started tuning out pretty quick. It's a little soon after baby sea turtles, right? You tuned out. He's talking about the church. It sounds it's lofty language, all these claims. I know what Pastor Mark, you know, is like, you know, whenever no one's watching. I know that this person did over here. I know, you know, they let me down. I've been hurt. We've been abused. We understand this. And the point is, yes, there is no there are no claims here that the church can replace 
God or that they're even anything more than just an appetizer at their best. Church is full of sinners and we let people down. But the real question is not, can the church be a perfect representation of God himself? It can't. The point is, how do we, if this is where God says, this is where you are going to partake of me, this is where you're going to be shaped by me, this is where I'm going to give you desires uh, that hunger more and more for me, and therefore you're more and more satisfied for community. If this is the family in which that happens, then how does this family learn to look more and more like God? That's the real question. How do we look more and more like God? And I think, I'm just going to read it again, one last little point here. Paul says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So it's not only that we participate with God in the community of the church. It's that as we participate with God in the community of the church, we actually are proclaiming God to a watching world and to one another. And we're proclaiming a specific kind of God. One who has his body broken to give life to others and one who pours out his blood to sacrifice for others. So how is the church different? How can we be shaped by this meal? Oh, look at blood and bread. This is really brief. Blood. Jesus sacrificed his life for you and for me and for the world. When we receive, when we eat, you know, consume Jesus into ourselves, he is shaping us. He's making a culture, a community that's built around sacrificing ourselves for the sake of others. Again, not in competition, not throwing others to the wolves, but instead laying down our lives, pouring ourselves out, our time, our energy, our money, our conversation, our listening skills, our, uh, uh, any kind of talent we have. We're sacrificing for others. We're living not so much for ourselves. We spend ourselves, we pour it out for our new family. That's how you're shaped when you partake of Jesus and his community and bread. Bread is that thing. That gives you strength in life, right? It's the metaphor for all food in the scriptures. And it's that thing you need in the morning to get energy to go and do your work. Instead of being a community that is constantly trying to protect our own lives and grow, even if it's at the expense of others, and to succeed and to, to get all we can and to grow up and big and strong. When we consume the new life of Jesus, we are able more and more to help others grow. To be concerned about the whole loaf growing together. We're able more and more to give rest to one another, renewal to one another, strength to one another. We get to be a part of this loving community. And so here's what I want to say in closing. If you will feast on Jesus, and yes, we do mean specifically at this table, but we mean even more uh, cosmically, if you will. If you will feast your hungers and your desires upon God, Father, Son, and Spirit then you are a part of his new family. You actually, as this text says, you become the bread of life. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. I'm what people are hungering for beyond all their hungers in the world. In this mysterious way, the church becomes a part of this bread of life. Becomes the community that others are desiring and want to be a part of. Being the kind of community they don't experience in all their other communities out here on the East End. Desiring to be a part of a real community, a deep community, a nourishing community for the life of the world. And so as you feast upon God and you're knit together as one loaf, you will begin to feed the hungers and the desires of those around you. Instead of being a bottomless pit of hunger yourself, 
you turn into a spring, if you will, in the desert. A feast set for your friends and neighbors here. The good news with our hungers and desires, friends, is not only that they're good and that God gives them, that he longs to feed us and satisfy us, but that he actually makes you an instrument of bread, of life in the world to feed others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I feel like I said so much um, so quickly and yet didn't say nearly enough at all on this uh, subject, which is really just understanding our hearts before you and in relation to one another. And so I pray that what was most important for each person here was just one thought, one action, one thing that for each person, by the power of your spirit, knitting us together, making us rise, giving us life. That for each person you would give them the thought, the action, the prayer that they need to draw closer to you and to feast on you just a little bit more today. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.